This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. I hope that you will walk away this morning knowing that we can stand firm and defend the faith. But we cannot stand firm in what we have not once stood weak in. Such a difficulty in our culture. We cannot stand firm in what we, not ha- what we have not once stood weak in. I learned, I learned this early on in my life in different ways, and it's been a continual journey through my life of discovering how this fleshes out as an adult with children, as a husband. But I remember one of the first times, and you may have heard this story before, but I remember one of the first times that I really uh, significantly felt the weight of my inability and my weakness. It was ninth grade year. I was all of about four foot eleven. I was about a buck thirty-five. I uh, was on a state contending football team trying to be the quarterback. I could not even see over the center. This is really difficult. I couldn't pass. It was hard to even hand off. I, I would struggle sometimes to even get the ball. And I remember in weight training class one time, and you got to understand, y'all, with state contending football teams, they don't play around with their workouts. It's like a whole different world that I realize now is maybe, maybe not, wasn't the most healthy thing for me to engage in. But regardless, the difficulty and what it pushed me to accomplish and to try and to be strengthened in. In that moment, it was me and there would be guys beside me who would squat 550, 600, bench in 3, 350, and these huge men, 6'5", giant guys around me. And as they were calling roll call Coach Christmas a, a legend for high school football from Virginia down to Georgia, winning state championships all the way through, Coach Christmas calling roll the first day of weight training class, which was special to have in there because he wasn't normally in weight training class, right? So there was already just this huge weight on everybody. Oh, Coach Christmas is here. We better all work out hard, right? And he decides to call roll. And you're like, why is he the one that's calling roll? Right? Going through the names, there's literally D1, D2 athletes throughout the list of men who are on this sheet. And then he comes to Matthew McMillan. And with the greatest high-pitched squeal of my life, I said, Here! <laughs> and everyone erupted in laughter right? I was small, short, ineffective at my job, was shifted to a different role the first year because of how bad I was at what I was supposed to do. My direct coach under Coach Christmas, his name was Coach Inverso. He was a uh, uh, NFL uh, quarterback. He played for the New York Jets, and he was my quarterback coach. His son was the starting QB unbelievable talent. And yet, Coach Inverso saw me and invested in me and my weakness. 
He called me the general as a small, small ninth grade boy. He called me the general. He invested in me. He challenged me to be better than I was. And he pushed pushed me to be strengthened every single day, making me better. He invested in me. It was my first year of college in a class called Issues in Christian Theology with C. Marvin Pate. Dr. Pate would travel throughout America to different seminaries and schools, training in Pauline studies, writing over 50 books. He was an unbelievable scholar to be studying under. Unreal. He was writing a commentary on Romans in our first class. On the first day, he said... Does anybody know any difficult Pauline passages that you might bring up that we can just kind of put down and say, okay, this is a verse that's a little bit difficult to understand. I said, Dr. Pate, I shared the verse, and he looked at me and said, that's actually not in the Bible. That's just a popular catchphrase. So embarrassing. It was my first year of college at Washtenaw Baptist University, and I was already exposed for my weakness in understanding Scripture. But he invested in me. He took me from weakness, and he invested in me, invested in me, invested in me, had me come into his office and poured Scripture into my life, challenged me theologically, made me work harder, strive to be better strengthened me. My senior year, he gave me his commentary on Romans before it was published and said, Matt, read through this and give me some feedback. He gave me the opportunity to read his commentary on Romans, and yet I didn't even know Scripture when the first time I met him. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to reveal our weakness before we can become strong. As Christ would put it, sometimes we need to humble ourselves before God will raise us up in due time. Before we can be strong, we have to reveal our weakness. It is the only way we can build upon it, and it is Christ Himself who is our strength anyways. I learned this as a young football player. I learned this as a young academic. And I continue to learn this as I fail and struggle to be the best parent and husband I can be. And I'm sure you do the same. The question is, are we willing to admit that we are at a place in our life where we need God's strength? It is James 1. It is Paul speaking throughout 1 Corinthians telling us that in the midst of our suffering and struggles, in the midst of our difficulties, it's those difficulties that build us towards endurance. If we have any sort of strength right now in our lives, it's because God has strengthened us. And oftentimes it takes going through difficult seasons in life that we would have already faced or that affects of the sin of this world that we face today that God is driving us through, pushing us through, helping us through, walking through it with us in the valleys of life, in the difficulties of life that is building us to an endurance, a strength that allows us to stand firm and defend the faith. I want to show you a story about a man who we've been tracing throughout Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 22, verse 21, and we're going to look at Paul, the story of his strength, weakness, and being rebuilt on the strength of Jesus Christ, that he might stand firm and defend the faith in the presence of many. 
Let's look at it together. Acts 21, verse 17. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went, with us, uh, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing but that you yourself are always careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him. Now pause here. Let's look at what's happening. When Paul got to Jerusalem, which if you remember from last week, the prophet told him that he would go to Jerusalem, be arrested, and sent over to the Romans. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he's received warmly. Like this is a, it's a good entrance into Jerusalem. And they're sort of excited for what he's been doing. Uh, they mention how many thousands of people are coming to faith because of the missions that he's doing and how many people are being saved in Jerusalem as well. So this is a sort of exciting moment. But then it's clarified, but the people who were once Jews and now have followed the Messiah are frustrated that they don't see you following after the law. And so just to clarify here what's happening, Paul would say that the law does not save you, Christ saves you. But when you are saved, you are obedient to what God has called you to do. Some would call that the law. Jesus, uh, Paul writes in Galatians 6 uh, about Jesus' law. It's okay to use that term as long as you know what it means. The law is not about being saved. The law is about your salvation working itself out and being shown on display for the world to see. So what Paul is doing in this moment uh, here is he's trying to show the other Jews, hey, look, I'm not against the law. I'm not here to, just like Jesus said, I'm not here to abolish the law. Instead, he is fulfilling, just as Jesus did, following after Jesus to do what God has called him to do. So he's willing to go to the point of taking up like a Nazaritic uh, vow. He's willing to go do purification He's willing to go through all this just to show Jesus Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That grace comes before obedience. And so in verse 27, when the seven days were older, they seize him. And verse 28, shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law in this place. Talking about the temple. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now later, Paul is going to say he did not actually bring Trophimus into the temple. 
But the Jews say that he did. Why? Because he was walking around with Paul in the city. So they assumed that Paul brought him in there. Now, the the problem for the Jewish, uh, the, the Pharisees especially, uh, the problem is that if you brought anybody into the inner court, into especially near the presence of the Lord, they said that you uh, should be killed for doing that. So if Paul did that, they would try to kill him. Um, which is what they do. It says in verse 30, the whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos, taking among, uh, along soldiers and centurions. He immediately ran down to them, seeing the commander and the soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. Then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. So the reason they step in is because the Romans were about peace and order. They would go in and take over nations, and they wanted to establish peace and order in those nations so that they could be fueled with their taxes. So it was was sort of like, as long as the countries were just peaceful and weren't trying to overthrow Rome, they could just do what they wanted to do. They could even worship their own gods. That's fine. But if they tried to overthrow Rome, they would just destroy them. So anytime there was chaos or a riot, tensions flared. I mean, for good reason for the Romans, it was only about 13 years after, 15 to 13 years after this that uh, the Jews rose up to overthrow the Romans. So it, they would try to squash all of these types of uh, revolts or uh, any sort of uh, public issue that came to them. They would try to stop them. And oftentimes, the way they'd stop them, if you study historically uh, how the Romans did it, oftentimes they would just shut them down, arrest them, or kill them, uh, or beat them to the point where they said, okay, we better not do that again. So it says in verse uh, 34, Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mass of people followed yelling, Get rid of him. As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, Am I allowed to say something to you? The commander replied, You know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had been given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. I want to set this, I want you to see this for what it is. The barracks uh, in Jerusalem at this time were sort of uh, up. If you, were, if you were in the city, you would sort of look up to the barracks. Um, they, it had a ramp up to it, and it was sort of looked like what we would think of as an old castle. It had the four corners and uh, the tower look going up on the sides. Um, when the people were rushing around them, they were violently coming after him, yelling at him different things. So you can imagine, you know, he took Trophimus into the temple. He doesn't follow the law. He preaches uh, uh, multiple gods. They were throwing all sorts of different things at Paul, right? So in this scenario, here's what we have. On one side, you have people condemning Paul because he doesn't follow the law like they want him to. On the other side, you have the Roman centurions who are arresting him because of some sort of public disturbance. 
Ultimately, they're going to continue to try Paul and put him on trial in this arrest, and they're going to move him from place to place and make him defend what he is saying. So literally in this scenario, you have one group who's saying, you aren't religious enough, and you have other group who's saying, you're a religious zealot trying to overthrow Rome. That's the tension we live in. That is the tension that our church today and the church globally lives in. We have on one side people who are yelling at us, you're not doing enough, you're not uh, scriptural enough, you're not religious enough, you're not following enough of the law, you aren't good enough. We've got one side yelling at us on this side, and we're kind of in the middle going, okay, but you're saying this, and then on this other side, he's saying, aren't you the Egyptian guy that tried to overthrow Rome with the other assassins? Aren't you the guy that's that's starting the revolt? It makes sense. You're out there causing a lot of issues. Aren't you that guy? You're just a religious zealot trying to overthrow Rome. You see the tension here. We find ourselves in this today, right? You're not religious enough. You're too religious. You're condemning the world. All your views are impractical with the world, what the world views are and the progress of the world. They say that we are too legalistic. They say that we have too many laws. They say we have too many rules. They, were, they say we're fanatics. They say we're revolutionaries. They say we're trying to overthrow things. They say the church is crazy, delusional. We have this on both sides. And you know what's easier? Just go into one side. Just, just follow one side. Like Paul, just go back to Rome. Just, your life will be so much easier. They'll take care of you there. You're not, you can't be killed because you're Roman, like for what you've done. Like just go live an easy life and don't worry about the gospel message. Or join the Jews. Deny Christ's grace and mercy. Just follow after the law. Stone every Christian again. Arrest them and kill them. Paul, just join one of the sides because neither are accepting you in this moment. Just give in. That's the message the world is trying to give us right now. So it's so important for us to see how Paul responds. It says in verse 39, sorry, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. And, and he makes this note, this special note, this is important. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. Right? He's not speaking in Greek, a foreign language. He's speaking to them in their Palestinian, in the Palestinian, Palestine, Jerusalem. <laughs> Can't say it right right now. Language. Not in Hebrew, but in their specific language. He's speaking to them into the culture in a way that they can hear and understand. Do you see what he did? He spoke Greek. And then he turned around and he spoke Aramaic. Because he knew the culture to which he was speaking into. And now look at what he says. I am a Jew 
born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. And after I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. Do you see what he's done here? Speaking in Greek, he turns to the crowd. He says in Aramaic, I was like you, yelling, arresting, beating, murdering. I was like you. I did what you did. Do you see what the strength he's evoking inside of him? It's like, it's like when we say, if you've ever said in your life, man, you, you, you should have known me back then. You should have seen how strong I was. You should have seen what I was able to do back in my prime. Paul says, I was just like you. I was doing what you did. And it says in verse 6, As I was traveling and approaching Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What should I do, Lord? The Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand, uh, by hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Look at what just happened to him. He went from, just like them, persecuting, arresting, overseeing death, headed to Damascus to do the same thing. Like Paul had the authority and the power to oversee groups, not just himself, but to oversee groups who were arresting people who were of the way, and he was killing them or putting them in jail or beating them. And then on the road to Damascus, what happens? A man who looked like he was strong and tall and standing on his own feet got swept off his feet and dropped to the ground and blinded. It wasn't until Paul was exposed to be weak that Paul could find the strength in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 12, Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour I looked up and saw him, and he said, The God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord... They know that in the synagogue after synagogue, I had had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. And look at what God says to him in the midst of his weakness. The most exposed, weak, knocked off his feet, blinded moment in his life where he has no strength and no friends around him, and he's going against what he had been taught for his entire life. The Lord raises him up and he says this in verse 21. He said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Throughout the world I am sending you as, as his messenger. Like he's raised him up as God's messenger to the rest of the world. 
The one who was knocked off his feet is now walking and spreading the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Paul revealed his weakness. He went from the man who was persecuting and killing and and, and arresting to the man who was knocked on his feet and blinded. But Paul stood firm. In his weakness and admitting his weakness, he stood firm in front of the Romans and in front of the Jews. The Jews were trying to attack him. The Romans were arresting him. And he stood in that moment in the gap and he said, let me speak to them. And the Romans said, okay, speak to him. He turns to them and he says, I was weak, but God has made me strong. Paul stood firm on the gospel message. And because of that, he was able to defend his faith. And I want you to note down something really important. He defended his faith. There are times in our life where we ought to defend the faith. That is, the beliefs in the Bible, the theology of the Bible. There are times where Paul in Acts will come at them and bring a bunch of Jewish uh, or Old Testament uh, literature, verses, And he'll walk through that and he'll say, okay, look at this verse to the Jews specifically. He'll say, look at these verses. They all point towards Christ. But in this moment, he doesn't do that. He defends his faith in those beliefs. Defending the faith means you defend the beliefs. Defending your faith means you say, I was a dead man. I was knocked off my feet. I was blind and now I see. That's my king. He's the one who transforms me and has made me who I am. And you can imagine as he's talking to the Jews who were trying to do what he had done, arresting, beating, and murdering. He's saying, hey, I used to do that. And God knocked me off my feet and raised me up to be a gracious lover of his kingdom and his people. That's what God did to Paul. From a a persecuting murderer to a loving saint. That's what God did for Paul. And he says it to the entire crowd. That's defending your faith. We should reveal our weakness. We should stand firm and we should defend our faith. But when we are given a stage, let's make sure that on that stage we stand for Christ. If we are given a stage like Paul was given in between the Romans and the Jews to preach a gospel message, let's make sure that when we stand up there, we preach Christ. Y'all, let's be really clear here. The Roman culture was terrible. We see travesty across the world today. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine today. We pray for our brothers and sisters, the church, the underground church in Russia today. We are praying for those Christians throughout the world and those who are far from Christ to come to know Him. We are praying for people across the world. But I want to be really clear about something. Because what we do in our minds is we don't contextualize ourselves into the reality of what we face today. The culture of evil, sin, Satan, and death has been pervasive since the beginning. This war, this, these, the evils, the sexual revolution, Rome was awful. They came in, swept in, and destroyed nations, overtook nations, taxed them unfairly, put their culture into them, put their gods into them. Jerusalem sitting there, the whole country, Israel and Judah in general, is sitting there going, man, we are now enslaved to another nation, just like they were at another time. To Rome, to the Greeks, to Egypt, they'd been enslaved to many different nations. And they're sitting there, and what does Paul do in this moment? 
Paul doesn't say Rome is evil. Paul doesn't try to overthrow Caesar. Paul doesn't speak into the political world. You know what Paul does? Paul shows how his life was broken and how Jesus came to him and transformed his life. That's the testimony that Paul gives in the midst of this moment, this just huge moment in his life, nearing the end of his life, being arrested and being beaten. Paul stands up and he preaches Christ and the transformation that Christ brings. When we are given the stage, what do we preach? This is a really hard challenge. Y'all, this is hard for me. Don't think that I'm standing up here preaching to just you. i got to preach to me too because we have to all be really clear on where our hope is found. When there are things in this world that we place our hope in other than Christ, when we get put on a stage, we generally will preach about it. When our friends start to talk to us about how things can be fixed, we start talking about the things of this world rather than the things of God. We got to be careful that if we're put on a similar stage as Paul, that we're not going, Rome, just accept me. Or to the Jews, okay, I'll just follow the law and reject the Messiah. But we stand firm and defend the faith by saying, no, I was a dead man and now I'm alive because of Christ Jesus. So church, we've been given an opportunity in the midst of a difficult culture. A really difficult culture to live in, where news spreads faster than it has ever spread before. But the same wars, same pandemics, the same disease that would destroy, the same struggles that humans have faced for thousands and thousands of years are still here today. We still face the same things. And if anything, let's learn from our past. Let's see how church has faced it. Let's see how Paul faced it. Let's see how Jesus faced it. Let's see how everyone before us faced it and learned from mistakes and accomplishments. Let's see how Jesus was victorious. Let's see how the church, as it's gone through the years, has failed sometimes. But I want to put you in our culture today. Because when Paul speaks to the Romans, he speaks in Greek. And when he speaks to the Jews, he speaks in Aramaic. And y'all, we got to speak in English. And if we go to Haiti, we're going to speak Haitian, French Creole, whatever it may be. But when we speak into our culture, we have to understand our culture. Now, I'm, let, me be, let me just kind of take you into my world. I'm a millennial, and I'm just as frustrated at millennials as you are sometimes. Right? Yeah. Millennials, Gen Z, I love you. But you frustrate me with some of your tendencies. And I know I'm over-characterizing here, but because I'm part of it, I can be a part of it. Okay? I can judge from within a little bit here. Because here's the reality of what we do. And tell me if you haven't seen this. A lot of times what we do as millennials and sometimes Gen Z is what we do is when you're telling information, you're sharing information, even if it's a millennial or another Gen Z, it doesn't matter who it is. It can be coming straight from like the most intelligent person in the world. We have our phones out on Google fact-checking. You know what I'm saying? You're not saying anything because you do it, don't you? (laughs) I didn't mean to convict anybody. I'm talking about my own struggles, okay? We fact-check like crazy. 
We've been given so much information in the palm of our hands. Unbelievable, right? It's crazy. We fact check everything because we doubt so much. We doubt so much because we've struggled to see authenticity. We've struggled to hear truth. We've struggled to sort things out. We feel like there was things in our past that was told to us that isn't reality. And we look at all these things and we learn so much and things change so fast that we're like, what's true, what isn't? And it's so polarized and we get information from social media. We get information from our teachers. We get information from our parents. We get information from the church and we put it all together and we're like, what is truth? Right? And some of us go to Google looking for truth. It's because we live in a culture that is desperately seeking out truth and authenticity. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be a church that makes an impact on the culture, truly makes an impact on the culture, it's not going to be because we are good at standing back and yelling. You don't follow the law close enough. It's not going to be because we stand back and yell. You've got to change this way. And it's not going to be because we're Roman, like the Romans, conforming to the things of this world, being like the world, doing the things that the world does. It's going to be because we're standing in the gap, saying, I understand I can't follow the law. It's why I turned to Christ. I understand I'm a sinner. It's why I turned to Christ because I knew that I didn't have the strength to overcome my past. Our world today, the culture around us, our children, teenagers, the next generation of children, whatever they will call it, they need to see that there is a church that is not the church because of the chairs we sit in, because of the lights that we have, because of the wonderful music that we have, because we have song, 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 prayer, song, sermon, song. That's not what makes us a church. And I get to plan the order out. Do you know what makes us a church? Us. The people. A building full of unbelievers that do what a church does is not a church. A building full of believers who are sold out for the king, that's a church. Who've been described sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, saints not sinners, alive and not dead. That is the church. And that's what the culture needs to see. Because every single one of us were weak. Every single one of us were broken. And every single one of us were desperately in need of a Savior. I know I was. And I know there was a point in your life where you were. The question is, will we tell the world, and we have shown the world, that though I was once broken, I am no longer. That I was a sinner now declared a saint. That my life is not the same. And as Paul would say it, I once persecuted, killed, and arrested, and now I'm about freedom and forgiveness. That's who we are. And the next generation needs to see it. And so teenagers, children, Gen Z, and millennials, 
They want to see authenticity. Will we show them that what we believe has changed who we are? In fact, Jesus would say, they're not going to know us by how well we memorized Scripture. They're not going to know us how, by how well you can discuss soteriology or ecclesiology or eschatology. They're not going to know you by how good of a singer you are on a worship team or greeter you are on the fellowship team or Sunday school teacher you are. The world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's what Jesus says. John 13, 34 through 35. If the world is going to know us, they're not going to know us because of our laws and, and, and rules. They're going to know us because of our Savior and because of the transformation that He's had in our life. So i got two challenges for you as the worship team comes. Maybe you've never sat down and written out your testimony. Or maybe you're in a place today in your life where you're like, look, Matt, I, I, I don't even feel like I can talk about my testimony because I don't, I don't even know that I've gone from death to life. I don't even know if I believed in Christ. I, I still find myself in this sin pattern, this sin struggle that I feel like I can't escape and I need help. I need, I need to get out of this. Look, we have a way for that, and it's not easy. It's like sweeping your feet up off the ground, laying you down on the ground, blinded in a space where, like, I don't know what I'm doing. God, help. Sometimes it's not easy. And we're not literally going to kick you and blind you. But what I'm saying is, sometimes it's difficult, right? Maybe you've got to change up your life pattern a little bit. Maybe you're not going to be able to watch as much TV. Maybe you're not going to be able to go to the places you used to go to. Maybe it's going to change your life up a little bit. But in the grace of God, maybe you'll overcome the difficult past that you were in that you felt like you would never overcome. And that is the story that is going to change the world. The gospel alive in you, that changes the world. So would you write out your testimony? A testimony is just your story and how God has impacted it. How God has transformed your story. Your story, God's story, and the result of His transformation in your life. That's the simple way put, but go to Alpha if you don't know how to share your testimony. I'd love to teach you how to do that. But would you this week consider writing out your testimony? This is who I was. This is what God has done for me. And if you've already written out your testimony, you're like, Matt, I've done that. I can share it in two minutes on an elevator. Awesome. What if somebody comes up to you and they start asking you questions about your faith? Do you feel like you could defend it? If you're unsure on what that looks like, look at Romans. That was Paul's defense of the gospel. It's many words put down on a page to say Paul's faith in the beliefs and theology that has been shown in Jesus Christ. Would you consider, if you've already written out a testimony, write out a defense of your faith? So that when the world comes to you and says, hey, are you real? Or do you just go to church? Are you real or are you just in a group? Are you real? Are you like, do you believe in Christ and serve him with your life that, to the point where it's transformed you and your family and those around you? Or are you just kind of part of this like social unit thing? Maybe put out a defense of the gospel that you believe that you would die for, live for, preach. And would you take that defense or that testimony and just share it with one person this week? We impact somewhere around 500 people a week with our services. Can you imagine what it would look like if 500 people from this church just went out and said, this is how God has transformed my life? But that's what the world is looking for. 
They're not looking at us preaching from this hill. They're not looking for us to look at the city and go, this is where you're wrong. What if we instead said, this is where I was wrong, and this is how God has changed my life. And I see you doing what I did, and I know the pain that you're experiencing because of it, and I want to show you how God has saved me in my life and extend to you the opportunity to have that same kind of grace and transformation. That's standing in the gap between condemnation and conforming. Church, we can raise up and make a difference. But it's not going to be between these four walls. It's going to be when you walk out. So as we say, link arms, go to battle, preach the gospel, stand up, in between the gaps, between condemnation and conforming, and preach Christ and Him crucified. If you're given the opportunity to stand, will you preach Christ? Let's pray. Father, for every platform you give us, for every gap that we stand in between, for every different person in our culture that struggles, would you give us the words to speak, the grace in our hearts, the love in our hearts, but the truth. Father, would we not back down from truth? Would we not be seen as conforming? But Father, would we not give that truth without grace? Would you teach us to be more like Paul? to share about our own weakness and how you overcame it. Father, would you teach us to be more like Paul, being bold? I pray, God, that you would transform this church, not the building, not the programs, not the set list, just different governmental structure in this church, different committees. Would you transform us? Would you use us? Your people called out by you. Would you use us to make a difference in this world? Father, we love you and we praise you in your son's name. Amen have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.